You've heard of the Blair Witch several times. I gave you back the map. And it's all because of me that we're here now, hungry and cold and hunted. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. We are back talking about Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, starring Kim Director, Jeff Donovan, Erica Learson, Tristan Schuyler, Stephen Baker Turner, and Lanny Cravens. Directed by Joe Berlinger. This was released in October 2000, I mean ex- almost exactly a year after the first one, Nick, on a budget of $15 million, made $47 million in its release. So it was a hit, but it was critically panned. The sequel to The Blair Witch, one of the things we'll have to talk about, and I guess the place to start is, was this sequel necessary? I mean, beyond the money, because we know money makes and films get sequels was there something else to say i mean they got it they had such a big hit with the first one as far as what it cost to make and how much money it brought in i guess you know they saw it as a cash cow so it'd be kind of stupid not to make a sequel but from a artistic perspective i think they said all they could say with the first one yeah and i mean that's the whole setup of this one too and we'll get to that in a sec but let's talk about sequels for just a second i mean you and i like a lot of the same film series that have a lot of sequels to them in general terms what works for you in a sequel what doesn't for me a sequel it works when it's actually continuing the story and not rehashing it such as, I guess, you know, I'll bring up Aliens. You know, that was actually a continuation of Ripley's story and not really just a rehash of the first Alien. I, I'm with you. I don't necessarily need uh, them to retell me the same thing over and over again. The formula can get old quick. Yeah, exactly. Particularly in horror movies. I mean, that's the trope of horror movies, right? Is that once they figure out the formula, they just keep churning them out. I mean, every Freddy movie and Friday the 13th really notorious for that. You know, I mean, they, they sort of did the same thing over and over again. Halloween yep. to me was was the horror series the slasher series at least that every three or four movies they would just reinvent it for no other reason than just to reinvent it so that one always kept me guessing but i, I don't know that any of it was any good you know for the most part but I, i'm with you i want to i want them to either continue it or if they're going to go in a different direction really radically change the rules in the game you brought up alien like aliens to me is a great continuation alien 3 is the game changer movie in that series you know really flip everything on its head so this movie approaches it the same way. You know, they, they brought in Berlinger here, and if, if you don't know him, he's a documentary filmmaker. That's really what he's known for. He did some TV, but he's known for making the first documentary on the West Memphis Three, who are in the news now. They just finally got out of prison after all these years, but he really brought their case to light about these three teenagers in prison for killing people in the woods in a satanic ritual, and, you know, all the time... It, claiming they didn't do it and it looked like a frame job and i mean they spent almost 20 years in prison so i find it i don't know odd or interesting that they go get a guy who made a famous documentary about a ritualistic killing to do a fiction film about people accused of a ritualistic killing yeah it's uh strange i mean that was one of the things that struck me about this movie was how it just completely changed formats going from you know a shaky cam POV type film to a conventional type film and to hire a director that's not known for doing a conventional film is just baffling. Yeah, I mean his stuff is really it's really good. I mean his documentaries are fantastic, but it is an interesting choice. And we talked about this last time Nick, you said you stayed away from this. You had never seen this before we started watching it for this podcast, is that right? 
Yes, correct. What kept you away from it the first time around? I guess uh, if you remember my my original thoughts on the Blair Witch was I didn't really care for it the first time I saw it. So when I saw that the sequel was coming out, you know, it was about a year later. And besides, it was just being another Blair Witch movie, which I didn't like. It just the trailers didn't look very good. I don't even know if it knows what it's selling you, you know, other than it's the sequel to the Blair Witch Project. And is this a sequel or is it not? Because it doesn't continue anything. There's no more Heather, Mike, and Josh to be found. It's it's debatable whether or not it's a story about the witch. Yeah. It's something we can get into as, as we go through this. Let's do a quick plot summary, though. Here we go. In the wake of the success of the Blair Witch Project, tourists flock to the town of Burkittsville, Maryland, hoping to see evidence of the original film and its mythology. Not all of the town hates this, though, as the local troublemaker Jeff has been selling merchandise to cash in on the movie's success. Four of these visitors join Jeff for his inaugural Blair Witch Hunt tour out in the woods. Uh, There's a couple researching a book, Stephen and Tristan. There's a would-be Wiccan free spirit, Erica, and a goth girl, Kim, who's there just because she thought the movie was cool. After a night of partying and cavorting, the group wakes up to find their research destroyed, their campsite trashed. With only their camera footage, they head to Jeff's home, an abandoned factory in the woods, and begin searching it for clues as to what happened the night before. Strange things start occurring, the group begins to fear the worst, and then another group of tourists is found ritualistically murdered in the woods. We flash back through the video to see the group finding video of themselves engaged in what appears to be a satanic ritual during a night of their excess, where it's revealed that Tristan may be inhabited with the Blair Witch. She threatens the other members of the group and then ultimately hangs herself. We later see the group having been arrested for Tristan and Erica's murders, as well as the group in the woods. And we learned that the mix of either Blair Witch hysteria and an amount of drugs consumed by them led them to go crazy and kill the tourists in the woods the same way the people at Coffin Rock were killed in the first film. So we see security tapes where Kim killed a rude convenience store clerk and Tristan didn't hang herself, but the group actually pushed her off the balcony, accusing her of being being a witch. This tape shows Tristan begging for a life before the hangar, and then we are left with the question, was it drugs and hysteria, or was it the Blair Witch? So that's the whole thing, and I want to tell you, we've watched some pretty convoluted films here on on Filmstrip, and I have never had trouble summarizing one more than that. Uh, And that's about the best I could give it there. I mean, there's a lot that goes on in this movie, but in the same light, there's a whole lot of nothing that goes on in it, too. I think you did a great job summarizing it. I don't. I couldn't have done that. Yeah, where to start with this? Uh, well, I mean, what was your just sort of initial reaction? I mean, this is the first time you've seen these things. I, I admit, I have seen this movie probably a dozen times. Just not necessarily on purpose all the time either. At one time, it was on FX all the time. It was before all the X-Men movies came out. And they replayed this all the time. And I would just see it. And I, I would watch it and watch parts of it. And I was eh, fairly amused with it most of the time. Never really paid a ton of attention to it. And, and watching it this time, I definitely had a different reaction to it than I had before. What was your initial reaction to it? I walked away from it just shaking my head. I didn't know what I just got done watching. I don't know if it was really a sequel to it or whatnot. I mean, the movie starts off so weird by basically admitting that the Blair Witch movie, that was the first one that we saw, yeah. was nothing but a movie. And it was all made up and that the townspeople were mad that the... People use the town name in the movie, and it just was like, you know, just all this fanfare about the movie going on. So it really didn't strike me as a necessarily a real sequel, but as like some type of like meta type film. Yeah. And 
just from there and then like everything that happened and I don't know I just I didn't really care for it but we'll get into that as we go on. <laughs> you know Joe Berlinger has a really interesting commentary on the disc. I think I said last time I don't recommend anyone listen to the the original director's commentary about their film because it's uh it's a bit of you know patting themselves on the back a lot and and Berlinger certainly does some of that but a lot of what we see in this movie is not what he intended us to see. And I can point out very broadly what he hates about this movie. All the little inner cuts where you see people running around in like the, what I call the red or the orange woods, you know, and they're stabbing and blood and all that. Like he says that was put in it's as short as two weeks before this thing hit the theaters that he never had any of that in there. And all the little inner cuts of people in interrogation rooms that sort of pop in and out of the film from time to time was originally all going to be at the very end, eight minutes of interrogations and where they ultimately figure it out. And his intention for this is that it is a satire and commentary on the hysteria created by the first movie. And as he calls it, the danger of blurring the line between reality and fiction and what that might do to people. But it's left open to the interpretation that you know, these people could be accused of something that they didn't do and they can't remember it because they've been possessed or they can't remember it because they've just been on drugs and they've done this horrible thing. I mean, that's that's his whole purpose of this film is a dissertation on mass hysteria and the blurring lines of reality and fiction. Hmm. And why call it Blair Witch 2? The studio. <laughs> I mean, really, he didn't. Yeah. If you listen to the commentary, he never calls it Blair Witch 2. He calls it Book of Shadows. That It's how he refers to this movie constantly. Book of Shadows, Book of Shadows, Book of Shadows. He never calls it Blair Witch 2. And I found that telling. And he often refers to a director's cut, which I think is funny that he talks about something that does not exist. Because there's no version of it unless some fan has gone in and edited it based on what he said to do with it to put it together like that it doesn't exist out there so i mean if they ever get around to doing blair witch 3 they might put it out or something but it's not even an extra on the dvd i mean he talks about this movie as if it's some sort of social commentary and satire so in a lot of ways you know they they knew what they were hiring when they got this guy and it's funny to me that the the makers of the original daniel mark and eduardo sanchez read his first draft of the script and said they hated it and walked away like they're executive producers and name only on this thing. They were never on the set. They never looked at it. They went to the premiere, watched it, said they hated it, and have never talked about it since. You know, they act like it doesn't even exist. And the question is, and I think we've answered it, this isn't really a sequel, is it? It's, it's a movie about the Blair Witch Project in a lot of ways. Yeah. They bring it up in the first, like, basically the first five minutes about how the movie is about the movie's reputation, about what it's doing to the small community and everything. Yeah. But... There's so much intertwined with the Blair Witch mythos throughout the whole movie. It is a sequel, though. I mean, there's there's shots of ghosts in there, and there's just so much talk about just like people, you know, feeling possessed and everything like that. That it almost makes you forget about the first five minutes of the movie right when you get into the whole like you know thick part of the plot. That if it, I think the director failed, and or maybe it's a studio from you know meddling with this project, but they should have been made more callbacks to the original movie being that just that a movie. 
but they seem to just drop that after the first five minutes. Yeah, it's like they want you to know that because the first opening shot is is a handheld video camera, much like what we saw in the last movie, mm-hmm. and then it switches to 35 millimeter standard issue movie. We got Marilyn Manson soundtrack in the background, the big swooping aerial shot. It's a movie at that point. It gets out of faux documentary land and into this is going to be a real movie with real movie conventional stuff interspersed with some video you know Mm -hmm. that's here and there because that's part of their whole setup is in the woods it's an odd take on it but i'm with you if they were going to make this a commentary about the hysteria of the first movie they don't talk about the first movie they talk about the witch and the possessions and stuff. If they would have kept saying just like the movie, but if they're going to purport that this is all about people who lose their grip on reality because of a movie, I needed them to keep referencing the thing they're losing their grip of reality with. Exactly. I mean, that's what the supposedly what you're saying the director wanted to convey in the whole movie is that hysteria based on a movie and what it does to people. But for them to do that, they need to keep on referencing the movie. And they don't do that at all. All they do is they keep on talking about the witch, the witch, the witch. And that's all they do. And it's just, it gets confusing. I mean, in a way, it's almost like they want their cake and eat it too. Where they want it to be like making a commentary about, you know, society and the way they see movies, but we're really making a horror movie that's a sequel to this other movie. And it's like, you can't have it both ways. Yeah, I mean, this this movie tries to play it both ways. And I want to go ahead and say, I think that's the studio's meddling to try to get what they wanted. I think they saw the cut he turned in and said, we can't release that because nobody's coming to the movie theater on Friday night to go to school. You know, this is not lecture all time. Joe. And, but I'm amazed they didn't know that's what they were going to get. Yeah, then why why sign on to the script? Exactly. I mean, that's the thing. He wrote the script. Yeah. With another guy, it wasn't like they made changes to the script. I guess they thought when they saw it, it might look different. I don't know. Maybe they work. You know, you never know about these things. They could have been working behind the scenes going, yeah, we're going to cut in some gore here and we'll put the naked girl here and blah, blah, blah. You, you never know. They were putting $15 million on this thing and they tripled it. I'm sure they were looking for a lot more back than that. Yeah. Because the the first one had just made, you know, hundreds of millions, not $240 million, right? So, I mean, good grief. This thing had a lot to follow. So I guess we, you know, we should just get into this and kind of walk through it and let's just talk about it like it is a movie. And if we see parts where it's trying to be commentary, I guess we could point them out. We've already set it up. You know, they, they talk about uh, this, this montage of footage of coverage of the Blair Witch Project. I remember seeing the MTV News logo pop up with Kurt Loder, and I thought, <laughs> MTV News. Well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> that, that ages the movie so bad as soon as Kurt Loder's mug comes on the screen. And it doesn't intend to, but man, it really does, doesn't it? I mean, that puts I you... bet they thought they were being hip and everything when they did that. Yeah, and, and they were. They were. That was right before MTV totally became this other network that, that what it is now. But uh, and it had changed a lot up in you know up at that point in 1999, 2000. But they they get into all these you know they got all these stands ups of, of quote local people. Then they get on Jeff Jeff Donovan. Now, I don't know. Do you watch Burn Notice? That's on the USA Network. I've seen it a few times, and at first I was like, man, that guy looks familiar. He's got that mouth or something. I've seen that mouth before. And then I did a little IMDb search on him, and sure enough, he was on burn notice. So yeah. Like, 
That's where I see that guy. He's the star of Burn Notice. And, you know, he did this. I mean, it's been almost 10 years later that he finally got a big vehicle. He's done a lot of movies, but this was his sort of first lead role. And I think from, you know, we talked about last time, who, who's the main character? Who's the one we're supposed to follow? I think we're supposed to be following Jeff the whole time. But they do something really weird with Jeff right after they do this opening commentary about how he's seen the movie 17 times. And they get into this whole thing one year earlier. And Jeff is in this psychiatric hospital with like this force feeding and the tube in the nose. What was that? I still have no idea what that was. They almost make it seem like that happened before all this was happening. But yeah. I'm starting to think maybe that happened afterwards, but they, they, they don't explain it at all. Well, they, they, I mean, they say one year earlier and then they come back to present day. So, and they keep alluding to the fact, you know, the sheriff, especially that you don't want to wind up back in the loony bin, you know? And I thought, well, maybe he came from there, but what happened there? Is this why he's this way? That explains nothing. And already, yeah. already, I'm getting hacked off because I hate it when you introduce stuff in these horror movies. They do it all the time. Rob Zombie's notorious for this, where you have these scenes of just weird stuff going on that seems to make no sense and has no connection to the plot. Yeah, a little bit of exposition on what exactly his character's past was would have been a little nice because it's it's referenced so much throughout the movie about him being a troublemaker, him being in a loony bin, and it's it's just empty noise after a while because it just keeps on getting brought up and there's absolutely no reference point to it. Yeah, exactly. We don't know what is happening here. And then we're thrown into this, he's like in a police station being interrogated and we don't know what's happening. I mean, there, we're six minutes into this thing and we don't know what's going on. Six minutes into the first Blair Witch, you knew everything you needed to know about all the, they'd done all the character setup at that point for those people. You know, we knew who everybody was and what their role was and how they were going to be going about the shoot. This one, we've done so much misdirect on the front end of it that I don't know where I'm supposed to be as an audience member now. Exactly. I agree completely. I was so confused trying to figure out what exactly was like the now in the movie. Like, what's the plot line we're going to be following? Is it the police station? Is it the mental hospital? Is it him, you know, talking outside of the camera? Is it him taking the tour? It was just so many misdirecting, you know, plots going on that it was it was confusing and irritating at first oh it was, it was totally irritating you know but the, the whole thing is that we flash back to i guess whatever happened before the police station now and jeff has set up the the blair witch hunt and he's got steven and tristan who are researching a book in the van with him along with erica who is a wiccan you know oh and oh uh, yeah i got real problems with this chick erica learson I remember the only thing I've ever seen her in other than this, she was in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot that they did. And she gets cassawed in half and about 20 minutes into that. That's about all I knew her from. In this, I watched her and, you know, I'm a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. And I'm going, wow, what a Willow ripoff. I mean, a bad Willow ripoff, too. I mean, it, it is so cheesy. And it's it's so, like, over the head numbingly bad that it's just like she has to keep on bringing up all the time that she's a Wiccan. Like, oh, they got to blame the witches, of course. Oh, I'm a Wiccan. I'm a Wiccan. She just never shuts up about it. It's almost like she's supposed to be the character that's been really offended. So now we're supposed to side with her? And I don't, I don't feel that at all. No, not at all. I mean, I look at her and I'm like, you look like anything but some like nature girl. I'm like, you know, she's got the perfectly manicured fingernails. She's got the makeup on. She's got the, you know, the, the permed hair and everything, you know, the toned body. I'm thinking, 
yeah, you're anything but that, you know? This is some girl that grew up in Kansas and moved to Seattle when the grunge bands were cool. That's what she looks like. She's putting on the clothes, she's playing dress-up, but at no point do I believe she's a Wiccan. Yeah, she's a high school term that was used a lot when I grew up was poser, and that's exactly what she is. She's just a poser. She she probably read about Wiccans and, you know, witch stuff and nature stuff and thought it was cool, and the next day she was one. Yeah, exactly. That, I mean, that's how she comes off. But Stephen and Tristan, the couple that are researching the book, and, of course, they're arguing over the title of the book, and they drop this line in the first of it. And I remember back the first time I saw this that I knew this immediately. She's talking about, hey, watch how you're driving the van, Jeff. I'm gonna feel like I'm going to get sick back here. And I thought, girl's pregnant. Got to be exactly. pregnant. Yeah, did you read that too? That's the first thing I read with it. Yeah. I mean, I thought, man, how how cheesy. We're going to do that. So they've already set up the dynamic, and they're going to meet Kim. And they find her laying on somebody's gravestone, smoking a cigarette, all decked out in goth. Actually, did you you catch this uh, uh, tombstone name? I did not. What does it say? It was, uh, I don't remember the name off of it, but I looked it up after I saw it, because I... They kind of held on the tombstone a little bit where it was like, we should be noticing that name. So I Googled it, and it turned out that was one of the victims they talked about in the first mother, which Oh, okay. No, I did not notice that. That's a good – and many times I've seen this, I've never paid attention to that. That's a good point. But that makes sense because that's the kind of camera work you're going to get. I mean, every shot in here is deliberate. And mm-hmm. I seem to remember the director talking about that in his commentary. Every shot in there is deliberate. But, yeah. Now, I don't, I've seen Kim Director in one other thing, and I had a hard time recognizing her because she pulls off this whole goth thing so good. She actually looks like goth kids that I knew when I went to high school. Yeah, no, she pulls it off very well. She's like, you know, that attractive goth girl that you kind of look at going, why are you goth? But, you know, she just got that, this, has, just has that weirdness to her where it fits the role pretty well. Because I have a hard time watching her now and not automatically going to the South Park goth kids. The whole bit is that they're going on this big tour to, and I wrote this down, walk where the witch walks, sleep where the victims slept. And I wrote down yawn. And I mean, 20 minutes into this now, I'm going, let's get on with it. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's like we were annoyed with Heather, Mike, and Josh for, I think, a whole different set of reasons than the way we're annoyed with these people. Because they seemed so almost too real that it was like, gosh, I don't want to watch that. That's like real life. These people seem so cardboard, cookie-cutter, fake that it's not fun to watch either. Oh, man, that, this ragtag group is it's just the perfect stereotypes. I mean, you got the hippie girl, the Wiccan. You got the goth girl, you got the bad boy, and then you got the good couple. I mean, it's just like, it's just your typical group that you would see in this, you know, in a, in a slasher movie almost. You know, you got the whole group of people that would never hang out in real life, but when they're in this movie, they hang out together. Exactly. The, the Breakfast Club on the Blair Witch Center. Exactly. What they're trying exactly. To do. Now, did you catch the line about the whole that he had never done the tour before? And Steven's like, that's not what the website said. No, I didn't catch that. Yeah, he, he said, oh, no, never said it on the tour. Just have a you know successful store. And I thought, aha, okay, so it's, it's laid off as false advertising. Or is that supposed to be like the first movie? You know, this website that had all these police photos and all that stuff. It's part of the hook. You know, is that the director, again, kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, see, see, they're, they're already losing their grip on reality. You know, or it was it just on face value? You know, I think you can take it both ways, but... But even before listening to him rattle about it for 90 minutes, watching it, I've always thought, well, are they trying to say like the first movie was just a setup? It's all part of the setup or what? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, like I said, I didn't catch that part. So 
it just that strikes me as weird. It is one of those weird little just passing things, but there's a ton of that stuff in this movie. It all starts to compound at some point, but you know they they go to the Rustin Parr ruins. This is supposed to be the the house where Heather, Mike, and Josh bought it, right? That was the guy who was possessed by the witch that was mentioned in the first movie who killed the seven kids. And then it was the same house then at the end of the first Blair Witch movie that the uh, two of them entered and, you know, bit it. Well, okay, then why did we not go inside that house? I was so ticked off that we walk around the outside of it, we never go inside. See the handprints on the wall, the remains of Heather and Mike? You know, I mean, what? why did we not go inside the house? I took it as what they were in was the house. I don't remember actually seeing the house, but just the stones all around there. And that actually almost looked like the foundation of the house that the house was torn down. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about it like that, but... Well, they start talking about a tree then. Yeah. tree that was there that was never in the first one. And, you know, they're talking about how could they build a house around this tree? This tree is so many years old, they would have had to have built it around there when they built the house. Well, I don't know. It's just... I think it's just a plot hole, to tell you the truth. I mean, it was like... Well, no, they, they play with that tree because it shows up in those videos a lot later. Like, it's there in one shot, and then it's it's a twig in another shot, and it's there in another shot, and it's a twig in another shot. It's this whole supernatural element, you know, or or is it? Or is it just their delusion? You know, again, you're, you're constantly asked this question, are these people just losing their mind? Or is the tree not really there, and, it, and and is the witch making it come and go, come and go? I don't know. You know, but it's supposed to add some creepiness. And I got to tell you, it's the first time in the movie I've started to feel kind of a little bit of the creep factor. I thought, okay, they got a little hair raising the back of my neck now. I'm kind of, I'm kind of intrigued here. We're, we're going somewhere. And then though, it's totally killed when they do those little jump cuts away to all the knives and like blood out of nowhere. Yeah. I will agree with the director on this. That was a bad step to throw that in there that early because it totally derails the delusion that he's presenting. See, with me, the reason that was taking me out of the movie was I'm getting flashbacks to the beginning of the movie with the main character being interrogated by the cops and being told about killing people. So I'm automatically taking that as him killing someone and not even the rituals from the first one. Yeah. So that was just completely taking me out of the movie and and reminding me that this whole movie is somewhat of a flashback. And I I don't like it when movies do that because it it just takes me out of it completely. Well, you you talk about arrested moments here. They're about to set one up. They, you know, we get to the nighttime now. And they're all, you know, drinking beer and smoking weed around the fire. Because, you know, that's what you do, right? When you're hunting a witch. And they're, you know, Jeff has a lot of nice camera equipment, by the way. And they're all, you know, having a big time and, and blah, blah, blah. And they start talking about mass hysteria. And, you know, Stephen goes on and on about it. the Bermuda Triangle is just this... There's this fear of hysteria. People don't fear what they under you know, fear what they don't understand. And you know, Kim says people think I'm a sick killer just because I wear black, which is a total reference to the West Memphis Three Paradise Lost thing. Because one of those guys, I mean, that is exactly why he was arrested and ultimately convicted. He wore all black, listened to metal music, and he lived in West Memphis, Arkansas. All of that to me though feels so heavy-handed. I feel like I'm supposed to be watching people who are partying and having a good time, and they're at that point of inebriation where you just you start trying to be philosophical, but they all just sound like idiots. Yeah, I pulled like perception as reality stuff was just again was bringing me back to the first five minutes of the movie with is this you know a movie is this a movie about a movie you know what's going on. And I don't know. Yeah, they're just coming off so fake with that. I just didn't believe one word that they were saying. But the party gets interrupted because another tour group with cameras shows up. 
Oh man, the two Chinese people. <laughs> yeah, the two Chinese people, the girl from Germany, and you know, then the two tour guides. And I thought, I mean, how cheesy were those people? That was just so eye-rollingly bad. I mean, you got to have the two, you know, Asian people, you know, talking in a language that you know no one understands, and it's just, it was just bad. It was just like it was almost like trying to they're trying to insert comic relief into it in a way. Yeah. But it wasn't funny. And they, and they do this whole bit where they, they send them off to go over there. That's where Coffin Rock is. And they're all like, oh, yeah. And immediately in my head, I'm like, dum 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 You know, <laughs> we, we've now sent them to their doom. And then Kim drops this line about, I don't think they're coming back. And she's already done this bit a little bit before, but it's sort of this I'm sort of clairvoyant thing. And they're all like, what? What are you talking about? And she's like, I just don't think they're coming back. But nobody lingers on it because we've got to get back to the party. And that's what I was talking about with the arrested moment. We have the party going. Then we've got to interrupt it with this stupid scene so we can introduce people who are basically only in that one scene before the next time we see them, they're slaughtered. They're only there just so we can prove in you know in reality those people do exist. It's not just imagination. Yep. I've got to bring up another point, though. Um, was there, um, Tristan. Was she drinking and smoking weed? <laughs> yes, she yes she was. And they've already done this whole bit. One of the girls asks her, how long have you been pregnant? And, you know, she tells her and she says, but I don't want to keep it. And, that you know, the, the director thought it would be a neat twist to put it on that, that the young couple that the guy wanted the kid, but the girl didn't. And how mm-hmm. ironic that would be. So, yeah, and I'm watching her drinking and smoking. I'm like, you sure don't want that kid, do you? Kim with her like some type of like psychic ability that she has. Yeah. It was really, really they kept on like, you know, dwelling on this in the first like half hour, forty five minutes of the movie, and then it's completely dropped. You know what I feel like with this, Nick? I feel like I'm watching a TV show that's produced for something like FX or the sci fi channel or something, but I've missed like twelve episodes in between. So I don't know who the heck any of these people are. It's like they fast forwarded through all that character development to get us where we need. You know, the first movie we talked about, they didn't need a ton of character development. They could set everybody up for us in the you know the first bit of the movie, and we knew exactly who they were. Heather was the the eyes of the audience. Josh was the the loud conscience, and Mike was the audience. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, yep. who who are we supposed to be relating to here? I think we're following Jeff, but I don't know who I'm supposed to latch onto and care about. Yeah, I couldn't latch onto any of them. I mean, Jeff was a douchebag. I mean, everything about that guy was I couldn't stand him, and then. Kim, you know, with the whole like psychic stuff, you know, you can't really relate. You're not going to be able to relate to someone like that. And then the whole Wiccan thing and then the pregnant couple, there was nobody there that you could actually relate to. And it just made everybody there just unlikable. I didn't like one person in this whole movie. I'm watching people make these incredibly poor decisions with all their substance abuse. And I wrote down in my notes, this party scene has lasted a long time. I mean, it goes on for probably four or five minutes and it's two pieces. And that's a lot of movie just to watch people standing around, whizzing around with the camera and like weird music in the background. Now, did you get the part where uh, like Erica was like casting spells to communicate with uh was her name Ely Kedward or whatever her name Ellie is? Ely Kedward, yeah. She wants That's to, it. She wants to commune with the Blair Witch. And all I thought was like, man, these people know they're in a horror movie or they're supposed to be in a horror movie. Because it's always that one idiot in the group that is trying to relate to the killer in some you know, yep. metaphysical way. And of course, I mean, immediately the first thing I said was first one to die. And this again brings up again the point of the whole movie, you know, missing what it was trying to go at was if Erica was doing this, 
we should have a character sitting there telling her, that's all made up. What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Like, why isn't Kim going, it's just a stupid movie? Like, you know, she yeah. especially, that should have been her role, because she's the one that said, I don't believe in any of this witch stuff. And they're like, why'd you come? And she's like, I thought the movie was cool. Like, exactly. she should have been the movie freak that's like, she should have been the one reminding Erica and the audience that, no, that's just a movie. Because then that that plays into this whole, it's them who lose their minds on drugs and go hysterical and they commit these crimes because they're influenced by that kind of media. They blur the line. The way it plays now, the way it's in the movie is, oh, cool, you're going to commune with the witch. That's all we get. It is completely dropped. And every single one of them, when they hear her saying that and stuff, are going along with it, like the Blair Witch really exists. So again, the whole aspect of, the Blair Witch movie being a movie in this reality is gone. It's completely gone. I don't know, again, what I'm supposed to be watching here. I can't follow it. It's missing its point of what message is trying to get across, and it's confusing the audience. The first act here is such a jumbled mess of things that it's hard to follow it when it gets ready to turn up the, the tension in the second act. Because it all happens immediately. They wake up the next morning. And, well, the first thing we see is Tristan waking up, and she's in, like, her sweatpants, and she's carrying a towel. And she walks into the creek, and she sinks the towel, and it opens up, and it's blood and a baby's foot. And then she wakes up, and it's all a dream. And I thought, what a freaky – I mean, that was a real freaky turn. That one got me kind of goosebumped for a second. I thought that that was weird. Yeah. But at that point, I kind of knew that that was kind of foreshadowing that she was going to have a miscarriage. I just knew that some oh. something was going to go wrong with her pregnancy after she had that dream, whether it was the witch doing that or her being an idiot and smoking weed and drinking like a sailor did that. You know, that's up to the audience in the movie, I guess. But I just knew that at that point that the baby was gone. Yeah, I mean, you knew something was going to happen. And what happens is the rest of the group wakes up and there's all this paper falling from the sky like snow. It's shredded little paper. And what I'm amazed at in this is that not at one time do they all go, the paper is raining from the sky. They're all just <laughs> running around yelling at each other about who did what, what's happening, what's going on, was it the other group, blah, blah, blah. And hear the director talk about it. It's That's that's where you can start to think maybe these people have flipped and have lost it because they, you know, they've created an enemy now, you know, the, the other group, and they're not aware of the quote supernatural thing happening around them or the weird thing happening around them which you know as an audience member he says if you're smart and paying attention and you're you're following the delusion line then you're going well it's not really happening there's nothing there you know which i don't know how you read it i just thought it was weird but it, it is a creepy way to get things rolling yeah it kind of sounds like the director's got his head up his own with that line because <laughs> there's, yeah. there's, there's no other way to read it besides the fact that that's falling on them I mean, up to that point, there's no way that the audience can think that that's all a delusion. There's no way. You're right. They have, and that's what I said. They did not set up stuff in Act One for us to be able to carry that through for Act Two. There's no way they've done. So I'm just left to think: Why are these people oblivious to what is happening around them? You know, like what what has got them all set off? And that's when I started going with: Well, if we just play it for a movie as a movie, they've all been possessed. You know, yeah. or they've been touched by evil or whatever you want to call it, right? My my opinion, too, is, you know, with this whole movie is they could have almost done the same plot and almost done the handheld camera thing again. I mean, I'm almost thinking like the paranormal activity movies, the way, you know, the first two are, you know, they're all handheld. Yeah. 
they could have done the same exact thing with a tour group, you know, holding cameras and doing this whole tour and kind of just doing this all with like, this happened. And But it was just like with the whole thing of making it into a real movie and dropping that old handheld thing, it's just making everything so confusing at this point that it's just, you know, again, you have no characters you can relate to. You have a confusing plot and it's nothing like the first one. I mean, how were they expecting people at this point even like this movie. Well, that's what I'm saying. They're asking way too much of the audience. Like I said, I feel like I missed a season of the show. You know, yeah. I, I feel like I'm dropped in the middle of something that I needed some more set. I needed some reason. I, I needed, I needed even the simplest of horror tropes, man. Jeff had to be Heather's brother. Steven was related to her or something. You know, I know that's ridiculous, but at least it gives me something to ground them all in. These mm-hmm. people, totally unlikable so there's no reason to care about them and they get in this huge argument and then kim again in clairvoyancy sees in her mind that the tapes survived so sure enough they find the tapes where the other tapes were and they start arguing and that's when tristan starts having the miscarriage now how did kim know those tapes were there well see that's what i don't know again that is she really able to see or was she involved in the putting of them there? It's never answered. It's never answered. If Tristan would have known where the tapes were, it would have made sense with the revel- with the uh, revelation later in the movie. Yeah, yeah. But with Kim knowing where it was, it makes absolutely no sense at all. And it's you know maybe maybe if they would expand it on the psychic stuff or whatever throughout the movie, but they didn't. I think after this scene, it was basically dropped. That should have been Tristan's role because then she could have gone into the violent miscarriage. You know, mm-hmm. that, I mean, that would have tied together. You know, if you're going to go there with that character, and they've already set up that they're going there with her, right? That should have been her role to go, I'm telling you, they're down here. And he picks up the rock, and then there are the tapes, and then all of a sudden she goes for the miscarriage. Now I'll tell you something about this whole miscarriage bit. Oh my, it's it's the worst part of the movie, in my opinion. And oh, that's, that, oh. that, 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 that's saying a lot. But. Yeah, I mean, this is so... I have a high tolerance for a lot of what horror movies will try to do. You know, and even there are a lot of directors I know that just throw stuff at you to try to shock you and get an opinion. But the shot of them rolling her in the hospital and the camera is pointed right at her crotch when you're going with the gurney rolling in blood and all that, that, I mean, I was sitting there getting really uncomfortable with that. I've had the unfortunate luck of having been in a hospital during an emergency situation, and there's no way in heck they would let all those people around her when she's getting pushed out into, you know, surgery or, you know, wherever she's going to in the hospital. But yet they have them all around them, and never mind that the hospital looks like a freaking dungeon. Hospitals are sparkly white. They're clean. They're supposed to look really sterile, and you never let anybody but the doctors and the nurses and one person maybe going down the hallway. And you know who that person usually is? Is the first EMT that got to her. Mm-hmm. Why are they in the hallway? That whole scene, I understand what they're trying to do story-wise, but it's executed so poorly. I hated it. It came off like a really, really bad comedy movie where you know the woman's going into labor and everybody's going with her into the delivery room. I mean... It was just bad. And then, you know, back to the way the hospital looked, there's exposed piping on the wall. There's It's brick walls, it almost looked like. I mean, the movie had a little bit of a budget, but just once I saw that hospital, it was like, 
you know, I didn't even know what to make of it. It's like, this is just bad. <laughs> yeah, it's getting real bad. And then, you know, Tristan's laying in the hospital bed, right, and recovering from the, the ordeal. And she has the ghostly vision. Now, what did you make of the little ghostly girl that, like, walks backwards? I didn't know what that was. Exorcist came to mind. It was like, yeah. is that Reagan right there? I'm like, what is she doing in this movie? And I want to tell you, it's never explained who the heck that is. That bothers me. I hate that. Again, it's another, let's have spooky images for spooky images' sake that doesn't go anywhere. If that's supposed to ratchet up the tension, well, for the first time you see it, it's a little eerie and goofy, but she disappears. There's no reference to some girl that walked backwards off the hill or whatever. There's none of that. I thought she brought up that that was uh, Lee uh, Kedward, the Blair Witch, but... She wasn't a girl when she died, at least according no, to the legend. So no, again, I don't a, know. I mean, yeah, she was an old, hideous woman. So who is? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. Again, I don't get. They're not explaining enough. I don't need them to tell me everything. I just need something to tell me what's going on. Yeah, there's absolutely no explanation of it. I think it's just like they're they're trying to insert some type of jump scare. But again, it goes back to if this is a if this is a movie about a movie, you know, and commentating on hysteria. Why is there ghosts in there? Yeah, well, is that part of the hysteria, the delusion that you start seeing ghosts? I'm, I guess I don't know. I mean that, I, <laughs> but but again, we don't know what the ghost is connected to. If the ghost is supposed to be connected to the Blair Witch in some way, we need to know who that was, and that should have been done in the first five minutes when they're doing all that, you going around town, and this is one of the girls that got killed by Rustin Parr or whatever. They needed to do that so that we had somebody to go, oh, that's who that is. That's that little girl. You know, they have these goofy characters that show up in these horror movies sometimes that are just spooky people to just be there to kind of guide you. If that's what that thing is supposed to be it doesn't connect to anything so now we can't either connect it to the supernatural part of the movie or the fact that these people are delusional over something they've read we don't know who that is and neither do they yeah maybe it's the girl from the ring <laughs> Miss uh, samara got up out of the uh well well she was wet enough for it that's for sure so yeah we get a little bit of information here though because jeff gets harassed by the sheriff now i want to tell you the sheriff to me was hilarious he is so over the top this entire movie everything he says are the rantings of the most redneck lunatic sheriff you could ever create yeah, this was something straight out of a Rob Zombie movie. <laughs> exactly. I thought the same thing. In yeah, fact, was, I had to look and make sure the guy wasn't in like zombie flicks. I'm like, did this, this dude in a thousand corpses, where's this guy from? Yeah. Yeah, everything he was saying, even his delivery of the lines was just like, I don't know. And I guess he had some type of relationship with Jeff, but. Yeah, he'd been in trouble since he was 10. You know, and I, mean, and I thought, well, what kind of, what did he do? Was he tagging cars? What was Jeff doing that was so bad that he wound up in the loony bin that we've never explained till? Yeah, what happened between the ages of 9 and 10? I mean, I want to know. Oh, I want to know something. I don't know anything about Jeff, except he's got a killer eBay store, apparently, and he leads the Blair Witch Tour, of which one of his first patrons just had a miscarriage on. I don't think that's a good advertisement for your gig. Yeah, it put it put uh, John Hammond out of business in Jurassic Park. So. <laughs> but they got it back at Jeff's house. Why? Yes. Why would a woman who just suffered a freaking miscarriage decide, I'm going to keep on going on this Blair Witch Tour? Why? Did I miss something in the first 10 minutes where these people talk about being college buddies or high school friends? How do they know Jeff? For what we understand, none of these people have ever met him before the day he picks them up in the van and drives them in the woods. They don't know who he is. They're not friends with him. Sure, they party with him, but they're not friends with this guy. And now we're going to go hang out around Jeff's house? It is so 
bad. I'm just trying to grasp onto some reason why two dating couple would even want to continue on this. And they don't even give us one line about why. They would be wrecked with guilt and on their way back home as soon as possible. There would be no going back into the woods to figure out what happened to the lost 12 hours. Who gives a rip yeah. about that? It has nothing to do with them because that yeah. all did happen with happened to his... Uh, I mean, of course, their manuscript or whatever was ripped up. But you think at the point where she went through a medical emergency and was in a hospital, which I'm sure the doctor is telling her, go home, go talk to your doctor, you know, yada, yada with that. But she goes, I want to keep on going on this tour and go stay at this guy's factory house that he bought for a dollar yeah, to which, find out what. Uh, <laughs> yeah, how ridiculous. And that's when you get the whole major player on eBay stuff. But Kim drops a line on him. They should have never let you out, Jeff. Are we now supposed to believe that the the witch is kind of jumping between all these people? It's Yeah, it's... It's getting even more off the wall at this point. Oh, oh, it's only started to get off the wall, man, because now we got to plug in the videotapes, <laughs> you know, and we get to see all of these. I don't know. There's all this weird stuff on the tapes. They're watching them around the Rustin Parr site, and the tree is no longer there. It's just this little twig. And in the middle of one of those, they see these people laid out on Coffin Rock, but they can't rewind to it. They can't find it, and the time skips. Ooh, that's spooky. One thing that I just couldn't get past, I've, I only got limited experience with video equipment, but what the heck kind of batteries does he have in those cameras? I mean, they're able to last the whole night. There are time-lapse cameras that will last through the night and stuff like that, but what they're watching is just like a standard good old you know, stand-up. Yeah, like you could it's a right VHS it. tape. It yeah. looked like it was a VHS tape, and I was like, I've used VHS tape recorders and stuff, and I was lucky to get like 45 minutes out of those things, Yeah. let alone you know, 12 hours of footage at night. And I mean, where's this guy get all his money from? You know, From a guy who seems like he's been in jail his whole life, he sure got some expensive equipment. Well, I mean, yeah, he keeps talking about how he buys hot equipment, but he doesn't ask about it, and then he resells it on eBay. I'm like, your whole bit is you run the eBay store, and that's your whole like operation? And, and I thought, you know, even if I can see that maybe you bought this factory for a dollar, the light bill in it alone, <laughs> you know, will run you several hundred a month, brother. You know, I mean, how is he getting this? Good? I, again, I'm watching something and I'm starting to wonder, am I supposed to just all these things are incidental? This is all delusion anyway. What really happens is what's on the video camera. And the rest of this is just what they are retelling to the cops as their memories of what's happened. So who knows if it's real or not? I don't know. That's what the director intends for me to see. But what I'm watching is a really poorly paced, badly put together movie. Mm -hmm. One of the strangest things ever. I mean, it was just like one of the stupidest character motivation scenes I've ever seen. The guy, he puts his girlfriend to bed, the one who just had the miscarriage. Yeah, Steven, yeah. And he goes down, he's talking to the Wiccan, and they start having sex. Yeah, they start making out, and then like she cuts open his chest with her fingernails, and yeah. and then they both look at each other like they're sitting across from the table again. But they both have clear memories of what just happened. Exactly, and it's like, boy, for a guy who just lost his child, boy, you're kind of horny, too. And, and, moreover, he's the one that's supposed to have wanted the child. If Tristan acted aloof about it, that'd be cold, kind of heartless, but it would be more understandable. He's the one that should be, like, over in the corner sulking. It doesn't make any sense for them even to say that. Man, we're talking about the post-90s here, you know, the post-alternative rush of stuff where we started to flip all these standard character motivations on their head just to do it for the sake of doing it. But they don't play it out. You're right. They both play out as if they're doing the standard issue thing. 
Mm-hmm. You know? And that's what's annoying about it. I don't know. All the characters are just poor cardboard cutouts at this point. They really are. And, and they're searching through the videos and they see this this image of somebody twirling around a tree in reverse. It's Erica that's the ghostly image on the video. And then we cut to her and she's like in her little rune circle and she's chanting and, you know, we brought something back. I sense this bad presence. And both of the girls reveal to each other that they have these rune images growing on them. They're like cut out with a knife almost. You know, and they're parts of an alphabet. And I'm going, oh man, if, and uh, I mean, I've always thought, I'm like, if they like start lining each other's arms up to spell stuff out, I'm, I'm done. Because, <laughs> I mean, this movie's dumb enough to do that. Yeah, uh, I'm surprised they didn't. I was just so confused at this point. It's like the whole, like, you know, camera stuff and her swinging around. It was just, it seemed like it was just reaching so much for just trying to bring some type of super uh, natural element into this movie. And it's just, I don't know. I, I was completely losing it in this movie. I was taken out. Oh, well, I mean, they're about to step on the gas with it, though, because now everything is really moving in fast forward because Kim decides she's got to have beer. So she goes to the convenience store, you know, and gets an attitude with all the people there. There's this old guy laying on the floor. And she gets the beer out of the cooler and she looks at him like he's, you know, a mechanic working on it. And he looks at her and says, my work is done now. And I immediately thought, I was like, well, who's that supposed to be? And the director says, that's Rustin Parr's ghost. And I thought, well, how are we supposed to know that? He didn't have a patch that said that on his overalls. But I thought I thought, I thought, thought there were no ghosts. I thought this was a commentary on hysteria. Exactly, so. yeah. So so is that her mind? What are we watching here? You know, I, Again, it's, it's so mixed that I don't know what I'm supposed to be paying attention to. Is this all in Kim's mind? Because what happens next is the, the clerk at the front gives her all this attitude, and she's filing her fingernails, and I immediately am like, Kim kills her with the fingernail file. You know, even though that doesn't happen, right there they have this little exchange kim leaves in a huff and i'm like i bet she killed her with that finger if i will just find out later you know and sure enough they reveal that later that that's exactly what she did but she doesn't remember it that way so poorly done so poorly done they shouldn't have showed her walking away with her still alive at the desk. They should just cut it right there, walk away. I mean, and then have her show up later at the house. They should have done a close-up of her going, here's your friggin' change, you know, or whatever, and just walking out the store. Then I don't have that misdirect loaded in my head. But, of course, we have to have weird mystical stuff that may or may not really be happening. Happened to Kim on the way back. She sees the children that are supposed to represent the children Rustin Park killed on the road, and she wrecks the van. Everything's just a cheat at this point, in my opinion. I I mean, oh, yeah. from from showing the cashier not getting stabbed to the kids throwing the rocks. Are they there? Are they not there to those kids, the seven kids that were killed in the house? It's just a cheat. It's like it's trying to be scary. But again, it's like trying to go back to the whole thing of, you know, is this really happening or not? I mean, it's just it's not good. <laughs> it's not. It's dumb. It's totally dumb. Nothing else really you know, happens the next morning, though. Steven talks to Erica downstairs and then like they can't find her anywhere. And I meet them like, okay, Erica's dead. And that was some sort of ghostly interaction. Cause they have like this sort of awkward morning after thing in the kitchen, which is, Again, it's weird because mm-hmm. did that happen? Did it not? What you know? What's going on? They can't find Erica, and the van's not dented. It's completely trashed. It looks like an elephant landed on it. So I'm like, how did she even get home? Did she wreck right in front of the place? And if she did, how did they all not hear it? And then here comes even a weirder part when they try calling her parents. 
oh yeah they find erica's clothes and it's like she's vanished you know she's just you know it's like the secretary at the church or whatever because she drops his line about how her dad's a minister in a one church town or whatever and yeah. so they they call and it's like the reverend never had any children the reverend doesn't have a daughter the reverend never had any children and the you know the phone hangs up and they're all like what what's going on and i'm going wait a minute are they all is that again their delusion that they never made that call that that's just something they're all dreaming or is erica mystical what what is that supposed to signify it's stupid that's what it signifies is that (laughs) whoever wrote this screenplay was a complete idiot and was just trying to give a lot of misdirects with absolutely no payoff i mean dick beavy and joe berlinger here have have become the king of the misdirects it's like they know nothing but knuckles and curves to throw at you they can't give you just a straight up fastball and it's it's terrible because there's absolutely no payoff to that you know on a typical script, you know, that we, or a movie that we'd be watching, it would turn out that she's the ghost. You know what I'm saying? That they didn't know who she was and she made up this whole past story and it all comes out later that she was the one behind this all and everything, which really wouldn't be surprised given her the whole witch character that she's yeah. giving. But, but, but at least it's something. At least it's something. They just say like, Oh, she was lying about her past. We don't know who she was, but we're just gonna drop it and go on. No, it's like she it's like she never existed. So we're supposed to think she's just disappeared, you know. Yeah, which turns out it's not the case. You know, maybe if she didn't maybe she just didn't ever her body never appeared. It might give a little bit more of mystery of like maybe she was the witch or something like that. But just by later having her body, you know, in the closet is just like Yeah, so man, it, screw you, dude. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh oh listen, that I, whole I up to you, man. Yeah. This is just bad. <laughs> oh, it is because I mean, all all that plays out very quickly over the over the next few things. You know, Tristan claims that she. And this is another thing. Tristan and Stephen get off by themselves for a minute while Jeff and Kim are doing their thing, and Tristan claims that I'm having Ellie Kedward's dreams. I'm having the dreams she had before the townspeople killed her and all this. And this whole, they've already set this whole bit up about was she really a witch or was she like the, the women in the Salem witch trials and falsely accused and now she's a malevolent spirit. And they're going so much that all that is spinning around and I'm going, am I listening to James Brown or am I listening to Bon Jovi? What station am I on? Because yeah, it's it, just, it's too much stuff at once. Again, there's no payoff to anything. No, and I mean, Je- Jeff's whole bit is he, he has this alarm that when his door opens, you hear all these barking dogs. So he hears the sheriff pounding on his door going, get yourself down here, boy. And I mean, he's already called him and threatened him and all this stuff because they found the bodies, you know, in the woods. You know, they, they there's that whole bit going on. He goes to the door and of course, no one's there. And then that's when he opens the closet and finds Erica's dead body. They wheel her around, and then there she is. And it's like, <gasps> they start doing this whole bit, and Erica starts, or no, Tristan starts talking backwards. Backwards. She starts talking in reverse, and Kim's the one that figures that out, you know, because the goth kid would be the one that would know how to do that. And Yeah, of course. And so they decide, we're going to run the tapes backwards, and we're going to use the keystrokes to run the tapes backwards, and it's going to reveal everything to us. And Another of course, exorcist ripoff, too. Oh, right? oh, big time. Yeah, big time. And of course, it works. You know, that they see the tapes, and on the tapes, they see the time where they blacked out. And it looks like this seance orgy ritual taking place. And there's two ways I'm reading this at this point, because I've already figured out they're, they're going for commentary here. This is supposed to be satire or something. And then having the director talk about it, he referenced something just fleetingly that made me go, 
Are you serious? Do you remember the backward masking controversy that really got started up in the 80s where you, you run the heavy metal record backwards and it was like, all oh, hell the devil, you know, all Yeah, this. Black, Black Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, Iron Maiden, all those bands, Judas Priest. And I thought, backwards masking? Really? That's the whole device? Is that, that's the secret of it, is S-River, is running it backwards reveals the truth? I how is that even possible? I mean, yeah, it doesn't make it. it it's like not. I said, I have limited limited knowledge with you know video recording and editing and stuff. But even I know that's impossible. Yeah, you know, it's, again, it's not. Yeah, and again, if this is supposed to be reality and you know a whole commentary on stuff. Why would they insert a device that's so improbable, that it's so, you know, well, okay. it, doesn't, it doesn't work? Here's the answer, though, is that it's not real. That that is, again, the, everything you're watching in 35 millimeter is the collective delusion of the survivors, Kim, Steven, and, and Jeff. Everything you see that's on a videotape, like regular old handheld, is what actually happened. That that's what the device is supposed to be. Now I only know that again because I've seen this a dozen times, and I listened to the guy tell me that directly. You know, yeah, if he has to tell you that, it's yeah. Not. Well, oh, not only he tell me, there's like this five page insert that came with my DVD that's sort of like it's called a director's statement, but it's really a sort of a here's what I wanted to make, and here's what you're supposed to know. <laughs> it's like pre reading before you watch the movie. And I want to tell you, it, it's weird when they get into that ritual. I want to tell you that is the actual scariest thing I saw on the whole film. That's actually kind of weird. If the whole movie had played like that, I think I would have been creeped out by it. I think if they'd have gone with your idea of let's do it all handheld, but it's people who are say like the Mythbusters are going out there to disprove it all. These are skeptics. And in the middle of it, they get caught up in it and we see them go out of their minds, go into this ritual, go commit this crime. And then it ends with them all sort of walking at the camp, you know, toward the screen at the audience. I would have gone with that because this was genuinely scary when Tristan's like, you know, throwing her arms around and they're all walking around her skirt and she's waving the stick and she sends them off to go kill. It's so bizarre. I mean, you got the girl like dry humping on a freaking, was that a skull was that? Or? Well, well, you know, now again, you got to know the director's background. He's done documentaries about people that were accused of killing people in a ritualistic manner. So he did a lot of research on it. And he says they took that straight out of something that Anton LaVey put out on a video cassette of like how to do satanic rites or something back in the 60s or 70s. So they, they took all of that from something. I mean, all the incantations are just BS, but the all the movements and all those stuff is supposed to be from that. So it has some <laughs> I mean, it has some eerie quality. Of course it's ridiculous. I mean it looks it man. looks stupid, but I actually I feel kind of bad for the devil, man. He gets the really <laughs> he, gets, he gets the really bad followers. <laughs> well they're all these. No wonder he's no wonder he's so mad all the time. <laughs> Well, you know, that's what you get when you go against God. You know, you get the idiots of the world to deal with. So I mean, that's that's what the point is. They're all watching the screen, Kim, Jeff, Stephen. But Tristan has turned away from the screen. Her back is to it and her head's down. And it's like she's standing in the corner waiting to get killed. You know, that's what I thought. Kind of expecting her, though, to turn around and be possessed. Yeah, I wanted to see some Reagan face. I wanted to see something. And all we get is she kind of does her eyebrows and then she starts talking trash. Yeah, it almost like she was possessed, but it was like not in a cool kind of possessed way, not yeah. in an exorcist type way, kind of in a 
we ran out of money, so she's just going to talk a lot of crap. And she all she does is just become mean. <laughs> and she starts goading them all on. And well, at first, they all turn on her, and she's begging for her life, and then she turns evil. And they just keep going and going. And then she's like, I, I, you know, she hangs herself in front of all of them. And then that's when we wake up to we're back in documentary land again because we're watching the news footage of these people being arrested. We're hearing all of the stuff about what they supposedly did. The five people that are dead from the other group. The van is impounded. There's not a scratch on it, which is weird. Yeah, they showed a scene before where it was, you know, the whole front end was completely like concaved in and everything. Yeah, totally. And then they do this. And so now we're back into those interrogations. And again, I don't know what I'm watching now at this point. We we see that Kim stabbed the convenience store clerk with the fingernail file. That wasn't a surprise, right? Mm-mm. You know, and the, the news drops this line. It's like, you know, these people, it brings up this question. Violent art, once again, inspires real life violence. There's rumors of a supernatural presence causing this or spreading all over the internet again. And I'm like, this is, again, it's so heavy handed. This whole bit about this is all just, you, you people just get so out of line and so crazy about movies and you blur the lines and this is what can happen or is it you know that's what we're left with because jeff kim and steven all see on videotape how they killed people and it's different from what we first saw or what they remember it's you know jeff kills erica and hides her body and we don't see how he kills her but he hides her naked body in the closet while he's nude which is weird and it, Kim kills the convenience store clerk with a fingernail file who smarted off to her. And Steven hangs Tristan while she begs for her life. He shoves her off the ledge and calls her a effing witch. It ends on him. And I, and the you know the end credits are we see this aerial shot of more people walking in the woods seemingly on another tour and that's where it ends and I I literally every time I've seen this I always get to the end and I go really yeah it's it's but what do you expect though it's a bad movie it needs a bad ending it's a bad ending to a really badly put together thing I mean it it really is Nick and I guess I'll go back to my initial question was this necessary. At all, did this add anything to the whole Blair Witch saga at all? No, it, not the way they did it. No, if, like I said, I wish that they would have just went and just did another handheld type movie. Who cares if it's following the formula of the first one? It worked. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, this whole idea about it being a meditation on the dangers of the blurring lines of reality and fiction is just so. <sighs> no, that, that's a that's a fine subject, but you know what? Don't tag the Blair Witch title to it. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you want to make a movie and not tag Blair Witch on it about this, I th- that might work. It, as this stands, it doesn't. And I think we both are agreeing on that. This won't be any surprise, Nick, but final recommendations and popcorn ratings are, are here for us in the podcast now. So what are yours for Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2? Small popcorn. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I mean, this is as small as it can get. And I want to say this. Again, I said I, I wouldn't recommend listening to Eduardo Sanchez or Daniel Myrick's commentary in the first movie. I don't think they really add much to it that you don't already know. I, if you watch this or bother to get this disc, folks, you owe it to yourself to listen to Joe Berlinger try to explain this mess to you. Because I think what he talks about in there, and I've never read the script, but the way he talks about it and what he shot initially – 
I think is an interesting story. I think it is a meditation on the blurring lines between reality and fiction. And it had a lot more references about the Blair Witch being a movie, you know, that, that you have said that you needed to be in there and that I agree with Nick. And I almost would want to see that movie, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to go out of my way to find it. So, yeah. so um, and this guy's never done another feature since that should be surprise, no surprise. He's gone back to, he <laughs> went back to documentary land and he's quite happy there. And I mean, he's a great documentary filmmaker, but this was a huge misstep on the part of the producers and the people that put this together. And I blame them for their own mistake here, Nick, because they set a release date for this movie before they ever had a script, before they had one actor, before they had a director online. They wanted a sequel when this thing took off. By you know, in no, late November, they decided next October we're putting one out, and they kept going through people till they found somebody that could deliver it on budget and on time. And the director did that, but what he delivered is bad. This is small popcorn, unless you're just infinitely interested in social commentary and films, folks. There's no reason at all for you to watch this. Do you agree? Even if you're into that stuff, don't watch this. <laughs> I think there's better there's better versions of it out there. I agree. Oh, there, there there's so much. You know, go watch Lifetime. Watch watch the old. There's <laughs> yeah. There's there's actually better made movies on Lifetime. I will I will stand up for that right now. Go watch a sci-fi original. You're gonna get better acting, a better plot, a better script, better effects. Mega Shark Merch's Giant Octopus had better actors than this. That looks like that looks like the Magnificent Ambersons compared to this movie. <laughs> It does. You are correct. You are correct. Well, Nick, thank you for joining me for this retrospective of the Blair Witch Chronicles as part of our Shocktober here. We're definitely going to have you back on again uh, to do hopefully some better stuff in the future, man. But uh, oh, it better be better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I promise it will be the next time around. But you know, we got well, this is our third film in our series this uh, this October, folks. We've already put out Donkey Punch. Nick and I talked about the first Blair Witch Project. Now this one's out. We got one more to come. Brian and I are going back to the pot of gold if you will and we're talking about leprechaun 2 and that'll be out right before halloween so folks you can really enjoy that release we really appreciate your support go to our website continuousplaypodcast.com you can find links there to the other movies that we've got in our podcast archives all kinds of stuff in there batman harry potter some more horror in there we got romantic comedies all kinds of stuff in there we even got who framed roger rabbit in that thing so a lot of variety in there and of course you can check out the art of slaying the Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective podcast that Brian and I host three seasons worth of Buffy talk in there. We do every individual episode. Download those again, all for free, all for you at continuousplaypodcast.com. So until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for joining us on Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.